This is a Q Media production. Leading and navigating change across a business can be overwhelming. So many leaders are handed a project by their board or CEO, and suddenly they're expected to create the vision, inspire their team, navigate roadblocks, and make some really hard decisions. It can feel like you're swimming in the ocean at night, not knowing which way to go. So how is a leader supposed to know how to drive change? The challenge is, there's no course or dummy's guide to leading change until now. This is your crash course in leading change, and I'm your guide, Lauren Ryder. In this podcast, you'll learn from top C-suite and executive leaders who've driven impactful change across their organizations. No matter what project you're leading, maybe it's a sales transformation or a restructure or a digital transformation, either way, the approach to leading change is the same. It all starts with an inspirational leader, and that's you. Today's guest is Joseph Vijay, CEO at IntelliSystems. IntelliSystems is an Australian infrastructure services provider supporting critical systems across both IT and non-IT environments. Joseph's career is inspiring. He always pushes for growth, both professionally and personally. He doesn't settle and actively puts himself in positions that make him feel like he's in the deep end. He believes that this is where true growth happens. We discuss his time at Schneider Electric and how his channel background helped find solutions to help grow the business. We also touch on navigating startups, common challenges he's seen across businesses, and practical tips on mentoring, being a leader, and giving constructive feedback. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Joseph. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be here. So you have had a really long and varied career, from coding to sales to commercial management to GM, and now you're the CEO of a successful data center services company. What do you think has made you so successful? Well, look, I think it's just, I've always been somebody who um, likes to take on a challenge. Um, I'm not one who is very good doing the same thing over and over again, so I think that's naturally made me look out for opportunity. And I suppose I came from a, an upbringing that said, you know, if, you, if there is opportunity, take it. You, you, what's the worst that can go wrong? You could screw it up and then fine, you try again. So, so I think from that point of view, I looked out for opportunity and when it presented itself, um, you know, I, I suppose I was, I was brave enough to take it. That's one thing. But the other thing is, it's not entirely on my own. You know, I think I've been very fortunate and I didn't, mind you, when I, when I, particularly when I look at um, younger people today, they're very focused. They understand that through their career, there's a certain formula that they apply. You know, they, they have a plan. They identify mentors. They go up to those mentors and say, teach me and train me. I didn't have any of that and I didn't know any of that. But I was fortunate in that people took interest in what I was doing. And they were very generous with supporting, you know, my ideas or even picking up on some of the things that I could improve on. And unlike, um, you know, uh, where people have had maybe negative experiences receiving criticism, I think broadly speaking, I had very supportive individuals. So don't get me wrong, they were, they were not um, afraid of giving me a bit of a smack on the head and saying that was pretty dumb what you did there or what you said there. Uh, but I always felt very much supported. So I knew it was coming from a good place. So I think that um, the opportunity presenting itself uh, combined with uh, having the right place, uh, sorry, right people uh, to support me at the right time has just helped me go from stage to stage. Uh, you, you said 
you know, that I'd gone through coding through to various roles. Uh, I suppose the bug that got me was uh, when I when I when I had my first role um, being responsible for people. I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I suppose from that point of view, then it was very logical. It's what is the ultimate role that makes you responsible for people, and it, you know, it is. It happens to be called a CEO. So that was a goal that I wanted to achieve, and then it was just you know what steps needed to be taken to to get there. So I'm still learning, by the way. It's it's very. It's one thing to have a role and have a title. It's a very different thing to be good at it. So, uh, so I, I'm still on a journey there, definitely. I think we all are. We're all constantly learning and growing. Now, we actually met, funnily enough, through the data center industry. Yeah. So it's a very small industry, as mm-hmm. uh, most people in the industry know. Um, so tell me a little bit, how did you get into it? Oh, um, well, again, so interesting in you know, speaking about opportunity. So I used to work for a company called FedEx, and I was in sales. And I was quite successful at what I was doing. And then a recruiter contacted me and said, hey, there's this little company called Harbor. Uh, They happen to be doing some stuff in the tech world. And one of the problems I had, one of the things I was trying to overcome is I spent so much time studying technology. I was in FedEx. I I didn't feel like I was doing what I'd studied. So the recruiter picked up on that and said, listen, I think you might be interested in this. Anyway, I stumbled into a facility called Global Switch, um, and I was in awe because there's this, there's this aura about walking into a data center when you first get in, just the security, the, the, the size, the scale of it. And then the significance of what data centers actually support, which is in effect data, um, sensitive information, and enabling any business really to operate that relies on technology. Um, so it was a very small company called Harbor. They had four people at that time. I was gonna be the fifth person. Um, I met, met these two charismatic founders, and I, we hit it off. And I remember signing the contract, and then my father said, "What's wrong with you? You know, why would you go from FedEx, that's a household brand, to something that nobody has heard of?" But I think it was the best move I made, not only specifically for the data center industry, but I think that you know, when you're trying to go through your career and make change, I think having perspective is really important. So FedEx was very corporate. Harbor was anything goes, you know, and 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 having a, a combination of those two was, I think, very enjoyable. Period. Did you struggle moving from big corporate to oh, startup? Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was really hard, uh, and I think it's it's also what crystallized, um, you know, how I approach sales. Because one of the things when you're in a large corporate, uh, you could be really good at sales. I'm not taking away from anybody in in corporate, but there is a lot that you benefit from the brand, you know? So to an extent, forget anybody else, um, a lot of my inquiry was inbound because people knew FedEx and they would come in and we were doing corporate work. But when you're in a no brand company called Harbor, well, you gotta pick up the phone and call people. And it was very, very confronting when you said, hi, I'm calling from this company. And they said, sorry, what or where? And that makes you stumble because you know, you, you feel like you, should be confident, you should come across as when you, same thing goes for when you introduce uh, yourself to somebody brand new. Hi, I'm Joseph. And they go, sorry, what would you say again? And it automatically puts you off. It destabilizes you. So that happened a lot uh, in my early time at Harbor. Uh, but I think it's, um, you know, it's what kind of helps you build those muscles that when you do it often enough, then you expect it and you know how to get past it and you know how to prepare for it. So I'm glad it 
I stuck it out. Yeah, very much related to change, how you have to just keep on practicing and practicing, get through that uncomfortable until you're comfortable. Absolutely. And if you decide that, I think in those kind of moments, it's really important to know why you made the change. So it was very difficult. It was not easy. And particularly, um, you know, when when you're used to being successful or somebody tells you you're very successful, then suddenly you're put in a situation where you're just not. Uh, it's a difficult pill to swallow. But I think the only way you go through that is um, you remind yourself why you did it in the first place. And would you go back to what you had? And if you just wouldn't, then you got to stick it out. So so you spent quite a few years at Harbour. What, what was your career progression there? It was predominantly sales. I, I suppose I became sales director ultimately. And you know we went from five people uh, to about 50 people. So that's a huge change to be able to grow a team like that. Oh, it was not 50 salespeople. The entire company was 50. But I mean, we went, I think, at the, at the, towards the end when we went through our acquisition, we were about a seven or an eight person sales team, including solutions and pre-sales. So yeah, that in itself, um, it's, it's not easy to, when you're inexperienced, to, to manage a lot of people and, and work through uh, the nuances. So I think that was definitely that was definitely shaping and that was definitely um, eye-opening, but um, but the trajectory was was really exciting and it was really phenomenal. I think partly we had a good business model, but we also I think got a little bit lucky in that managed services really started taking off uh, at a time when we were ready to deploy it. Uh, so you know. I think good grace has paid off. So what kind of change did you drive through that team? Did you take any of the learnings that you had at FedEx to put some structure or a big big business process into a small business? How how did that work? Because I've definitely worked in both. And um, sometimes the small businesses don't really like the big business process. Yeah, it was not so much process, um, <clears throat> but, but I agree with you. Um, I think for me, what I was trying to bring to the business uh, at that early stage, what I could rely on, um, I hadn't gone through, and I suppose if I take a step back in FedEx, I was a salesperson. So I didn't really, I I worked through somebody else's process. um, And I didn't feel authentic just copying that process. And at Harbor, by the time we built the team, we kind of had a rhythm, you know. So I didn't necessarily think the process was an issue, but I did feel training was a problem. Um, And uh, one, I think, very unique experience I went through at FedEx, uh, they had a really strong sales training culture. You know, we went through Every week, every Tuesday, uh, without fail, we had two hours of sales training. You know, and there was no excuses. It didn't matter if you had a bid or anything else. You had to turn up, and you had to actively participate. So I think there was a rigor that came through that, and I went through that for three years. So what I tried to do was bring some element of that into uh, you know how I led the sales team, not specifically running them through a program. Uh, but getting them to think outside of just being reactive to a, to a deal, you know, thinking about prospecting, thinking about doing a little bit of research, thinking about how you'd structure, how you'd plan your conversation. Those are, I think, advantages of being in a corporate because they drive planning and, and structure a lot. Like you said, sometimes that can be overbearing, but I think in the right mix, it really works. So uh, if, if, you know, you would ask me, uh, if I had to put my finger on one thing that helped us be successful in Harbour, I think it was going from being very uh, shoot from the hip, including myself, by the way, uh, to, to thinking a little bit more about how we'd structure our conversations and deals. And did you have to coach people through that? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, thing in a small business, it's good and bad. Um, 
you know, a large corporate if, if where I have subsequent years, if I had an idea like that, I'd write a business case, I'd go and, you know, get somebody to sign it off, and then I'd more than likely have a trainer or a professional come up and, and do this. Well, in a small business, you can't do that. You know, you've just got to give it a go. But I think that I, I couldn't have asked for anything more because it did two things for me. I felt, and most salespeople, I would argue, go through this. Um, at some point in your career in sales, you go through a little bit of imposter syndrome. You know, did I really, uh, was I really the influencer or the orchestrator of my success, or was I just in the right place at the right time? And when is my luck going to run out? And I think for me, helping uh, or, or using what I'd learned to teach somebody else, to teach a team, and them using the same principles and then being successful was a validation that actually, no, I'm, I'm genuine. This actually works. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm glad that it came across. Now, if you interview some of my, my team, they probably have a different version of this, and, and I'm sure it would have been clunky and everything, but I think we had a good time broadly. Leading transformational change can be challenging without a community of like-minded professionals where you can learn and practice the real skills of transformation. I am excited to share that JezTile has just launched an incredible online global community of transformation professionals. And let me tell you, it is a game changer. It's called People of Transformation, and it's a deep dive beyond the theories, beyond the frameworks, and straight into actionable excellence. It will allow you to shift from problem-seeking to opportunity creation, and eventually, future shaping. So if you're ready to lead the charge, head to peopleoftransformation.com and use the code LEADINGCHANGE at checkout for your special offer. Founding member spots are limited, so don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. So after you left Harbour, where did you head off to next? Well, Harbour got acquired. Um, so there was a company called NTT, uh, uh, you know, very large telecommunications and uh, services business around the world. Uh, they were interested in building a, you know, a presence in, in Australia. They had a uh, communications business in Australia, but they were really interested in data centers. They happened to be at that point in time, the third largest data center company in the world. Uh, and their choice was, you know, acquire or build. And Harbour, um, NTT actually happened to be a customer of Harbour. We, we provided collocation to them. So I suppose it provided for a very natural conversation, um, which which led to uh, us becoming NTT. We became acquired. So that in itself was challenging because we went from, you know, a, a successful uh, scale-up business by that time of an operating very much in our own world to suddenly being thrust into this uh, you know, a very enormous company uh, and and trying to work through how we fit in there and, you know, how we transition from being um, just completely siloed to, to much more broader, uh, that, that definitely provided for, for some learning. So acquisitions, it's always such an interesting topic to delve into when we talk about change. You know, I'm guess, guessing culture was one thing, mm. you know, how we deal with processes, how we communicate, all of that. What were some of the big challenges that you faced? I suppose what made it really interesting but also challenging was that through the acquisition, NTT brought three companies together. Uh, there was Harbour, which is a managed services business. There was Frontline Systems that happened to be our parent at the time. Um, they're an IT reseller system integrator. And then they also brought in the communications business. So if you think about it, we had a services business, a telco, and a reseller, all trying to coexist. 
uh, the decision was made to create one sales team, uh, and that was probably the hardest thing we went through. Now, I didn't have responsibility for the sales team, but I took on a role which was responsible for solutions. So really, uh, if you think about it, architects, pre-sales, commercial people. Um, so we were the kitchen. So the salespeople would go find a deal. We would then work out how to put it together. Uh, but that was tough because we were trying to balance out customer demand, keeping some of our legacy business going and keeping that momentum going. But at the same time, trying to firstly find what our new brand meant, uh, because at that point in time, NTT was not as well, you know, well known. Today, it's a very different, different brand. So trying to put our footprint on the market saying, this is what we do, trying to let go of some of the previous narrative and come up with this new narrative that would be inclusive of these three different types of businesses, uh, and then get our sales team to be uh, as comfortable as possible uh, selling all portfolios, uh, I think is the hardest thing. I would never try and do that again, by the way, but that was a hard thing. So what were some things that really worked well in that? Because it, it sounds like it was quite a complicated program. Very complicated. Uh, but I think I think there, there was a very strong, I think it was a pretty good culture in that, um, you know, both Harbour and Frontline, definitely we'd worked together, but we'd still not collaborated as as um, day to day. You know, there was there was engagement, but not we didn't have to worry about each other's businesses. Uh, but I think we came from the same place. You know, it was do a good job, try and keep it as simple as possible, and have some fun while you're doing it. So I think that did continue. That did help um, smoothen out some of the rough edges. Um, but at the end of the day. Uh, you know, typically, if you're trying to, in my opinion anyway, if you're trying to solve a problem, um, <clears throat> but there is a lot of purpose around solving that problem, so to put it into context, we had a lot of demand coming in, you know. So there was, I suppose from a sales point of view or a business point of view, I don't think there was a doubt that we were relevant. You know, we were very relevant by virtue of the demand coming in. We just had to get really good very quickly at doing a good job of it. So I suppose while there was hardship and there was challenges, that constant um, influx of inquiry, um, you know, made it feel like it was worth it. You know, it was worth doing. And I think that's if I, if I think about how do we manage through that time, I would say that was probably you know the number one thing. So really keeping that spirit up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, would, you know, if if I revisit that time and I thought. Oh God, you know, say we, we had that same situation, but then we had no sales inquiry. Say it was completely flat or we were in a different time in the market where it was soft. That would have made it harder, I think, you know, because we would have been not only having to go through that change, but we would have had to try and tell ourselves this is still this is still worth doing in spite of not getting the inquiry. So I think that would have been a harder thing to go through. Um, but fortunately we didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> Good. So after you left NTT, mm. where did you head off to? Somebody from Schneider reached out and said, hey, we're trying to make um, you know, this business pivot and you seem to have uh, an interesting background. We'd like you to apply for this role. So um, I thought it was a good thing to do. Schneider's always been a brand that uh, I suppose if you're in the data center industry, you know of that brand very well. Uh, so they've always been a brand that I aspired to. I really like their culture and their values. So I thought it might be a nice next step. And most importantly, it was something that I'd, again, never done before. I'd never been part of a vendor before. I'd never done anything to do with channel-related uh, selling. Um, and I'd never had 
uh, anything to do with product. I was more of a services guy. So I thought the fundamentals there made sense. If I was going to broaden my perspective, then this is one way to do it. And um, that's what came about. So they called you. They said, we'd like you to pivot this business. What was the challenge that they were facing and where did they want you to take it? Well, you know, APC has been um, a very, very successful brand for many years. Um, But they had two things that they wanted to do. They wanted to, and they've always been, by the way, um, very connected to the IT fraternity. It's, in fact, their unique uh, differentiator. Their competitors typically pivot more to the non-IT side of things. APC was always very close, and they wanted to hang on to that, uh, and it was very important. So in their mind, um, bringing somebody like me on who comes from an IT channel background uh, might give them a perspective on how to address this market a little bit more directly. Uh, and, And that's what I set out to do. So that part of it was more of a, they had a really great base, uh, they had a really great program. It was about tweaking it. It was about trying to find, you know, uh, efficiencies, uh, trying to find enhancements, if you like. What was really interesting, though, is while APC had a had a really solid uh, following for the IT channel, some of their competitors actually did much better on the non-IT side. So the electrical industry, um, you know, I, I I didn't feel like we were addressing it well enough. So really, for me, the opportunity there was to say, hey, you know, have you thought about why this is the case? And is it worth putting something in place to, to, to try and attract that market a little bit more consistently? It's a difficult market, admittedly. You know, it's a very fragmented market. Um, but in terms of raw numbers, um, and this is the economics that, you know, made sense to me, there are roughly uh, about 15,000 IT resellers, service providers in Australia. In contrast, there are 45,000 electrical businesses in the same geography, three times the size. So I thought, look, we've got to be more proactive in that space because there's got to be a market share that we can go for. Um, And I think that really paid off. You know, it was a a duel. So we went through, um, when I say pivoting, I think that word is appropriate because there's not a fundamental change to the business. It was, you know, enhancing what they already had and then trying to put a little bit more structure into how we'd pursue this other market. Um, and I think that worked. So you led this project. So where did you start? Um, look, a long journey because uh, as, you know, I didn't come from this industry. So for me, um, you know, even trying to understand what was the difference between these two demographics was was a challenge in itself. Uh, I had some really great colleagues who had spent a lot of time in the industry. And, and that's the great thing about, you know, a company like Schneider. Uh, where there's a lot of tenure. So if you know, if you're willing to speak to people and you're willing to listen, then there's a lot of people who are willing to to give you an idea, give you an opinion. And I I really drew on that as much as I possibly could. Um, So for me, firstly, identifying, you know, this idea, is it even even valid? Is is there a real opportunity here? And it seemed to be. Um, And then when, I think what compelled the argument was, when I looked at where we were losing business uh, to comp- a competitor, a lot of the time we were losing business to competitor because the customer had picked a directly a electrical contractor over uh, an IT partner. So if you think about it, uh, the, ch- the route might have been the customer, IT partner, they subcontract to an electrical contract, and so on and so forth. 
And a lot of times I worked, except at times when the customer said, you know what, we actually don't need the IT part, we just go straight. And in those instances, we didn't have an automatic way to capture that business. So that seemed to be the, the underpinning case. Uh, then you go through the typical validation of, you know, is this worth it and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think um, going back to your question, it's, you know, it's, I think it's having an idea and then speaking to enough people to get their perspective on, is this, is this a good idea? You know, would you do this if it were you? And why haven't you done it so far? What are the things that got in your way? Um, and I think I did a lot of that and trying to distill under what circumstances could we make this work? Uh, I think from the ultimate plan. Did you do much customer engagement to, to test those theories? A little bit. Um, I didn't. I must admit, I didn't have as much access. Uh, so, you know, if you ask me what's, what would I have liked to have the opportunity to do again? And it's not that I, by the way, I, I should rephrase that. It's not that I didn't have access. Uh, I didn't prioritize it, you know. But uh, I think a customer perspective is really valid. I think in that instance, I got lucky you know, in that some of these fundamentals worked and I think the program stood on its its own feet. Uh, but a missing piece was really the buyer. You know, could I go to buyers? Could I form a, um, um, you know, a, a sample set and say, hey, if we had these kind of partners also on our books, would Schneider or APC be much more attractive? Would, would it be an easier path for you? Would have been a really great question. Uh, I don't think I took the time to do that. <laughs> well, it's all, it's all lessons learned, isn't it? Mm. So did, what <clears throat> kind of challenges did you have? Were there challenges getting stakeholders on board or resistance in your teams? Or was there any part in the process that you kind of going, oh, this is really hard? Oh, there was a bunch. Because, I mean, you know, the the um, when you're dealing with a, a very mature supply chain, you know, there's a lot of things that just work. Uh, and you have uh, a lot of um, cogs in the right spaces. So they just, you know, or gears in the right spaces, if you like. So uh, people know who the distributor is. People know who the market is. There's a marketing campaign that, you know, is tried and tested. There is a message that makes a lot of sense. There's a product narrative that makes a lot of sense. There's an application and so on and so forth. So I think if I think back to that time, we had all of those fundamentals worked out for the IT space. Uh, we didn't have as many of those, you know, easy to access on the non-IT space. How do you address that specifically? There are other parts, by the way, in Schneider that do really well in those communities. It's just APC that didn't really focus on that. So firstly, you know, when you've got a lot of success and APC had a lot of success, that's the hardest time to change, in my opinion. It's the hardest time to get stakeholder buy-in. Because people say, well, why do you want to do that? You know, you've already got all this. There's a whole bunch here that you haven't worked out. Why, why do you pivot to do that? But I think there's uh, the smarter people than me that, you know, talk, talk to. Um, change is best to plan and manage when you're successful. Don't try and do change when you're not successful because that is erratic and it's, it's, uh, it's hectic and it's anxious. Um, so I think that was uh, that was a good lever for me to use, saying, hey, you know what? I think we've got a lot of this stuff worked out. There's going to be incremental success here, but there's going to be an order of magnitude here if we can manage it. Why don't we give it a try? Um, and I think those drivers worked. It also, I think, uh, worked out really well that aside from what we were trying to do locally, globally, there was a push to try and introduce products into that space. So I can't take all the credit for it, definitely not. Uh, but I think I leveraged that, you know, to bring those products in. Uh, and then the question was, 
do you think this community is best to sell these types of products or do we want to go after a different community? Yeah. Uh, so we had some uh, strategic direction to go down that route. Uh, what was left to us is how would we do it? Uh, that was the that was that was yeah. tough doing that because I didn't have a background in it, but I think it was uh, it was worth doing. So when, once you finished up at Schneider, now this, you, you you made the leap that most people would love to make, jumping into a CEO role. Tell us about how that happened. Well, I mean, I finished up at Schneider somewhat prematurely. I hadn't, you know, I I didn't necessarily uh, I I left for personal reasons. Uh, you know, my family was going through a really tough time over COVID and I felt I needed to support them. And I didn't think I could do justice to supporting them while I had, you know, quite a quite a um, uh, involved role. Uh, so hence, I made a decision to, to leave. Uh, but when I left, I didn't have a job to go to. In fact, I, I didn't plan on going to a role. I took a year off uh, because I wanted to just give my family the time uh, that they needed and I didn't want to be pressured by any agenda or any commitment. Uh, and so there was more opportunity for me to, to revisit, do I want to stay, um, you know, uh, retired, if you like, or semi-retired for a period, or should I get back into it? IntelliSystems happened to be a company or a partner um, when I was at Schneider. In fact, they were the first channel partner that I ever met when I took the gig in, in Schneider. And what I liked about them was uh, right from the start, they were super honest. You know, they didn't, they didn't hesitate to tell me uh, what's and all, what was wrong with my operation when I was at, at Schneider. But it was constructive. It was not just a rant. So I got along with them and I followed their trajectory and they were doing really well. Um, so both the founders, they gave me a call. And funny enough, when they called me, I thought they were going to ask me a question about Schneider, APC, get some help or whatever. But they said, look, we, we're in a stage now. We've, you know, we've grown quite rapidly. We've got a few different fundamentals, but we we might need some help um, if we need to take the next step. And you know, we really like working with you. Would you consider it? Um, so, in all fairness, it was it was too good a, an opportunity to 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 um, to pass up. But I blame them for bringing me out of retirement. I was quite happy drinking beer and and <laughs> chilling out. But. So, what was the first thing they wanted you to do? Um, like most startups. You know, you tend to be quite opportunistic and quite reactive. Um, and they'd identified that, you know, they can only take that approach so far. Uh, they wanted to, they want a level of sophistication to be introduced into the business. So structure is usually something that a startup will run from uh, because they associate structure with containment and doesn't have to be that way. So when I joined, um, I, 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 I had, you know, like a five pillar plan uh, for lack of a better term, just to say these are five areas that I think if we address, we're going to create an opportunity or a foundation to scale. Otherwise, we're going to be random. And they were very bought into that idea because they had the idea. So from that point of view, I didn't have to, I, didn't, I, I don't think I had to, uh, to convince them too much. Um, they were more concerned about, you know, how do we make sure that while doing this, we don't disrupt the culture because it's a fun culture. People enjoy being together. Um, you know, the last thing you want is too much process and structure and everybody feels quite restricted. So they were more conscious and so was I to make sure that whatever plan we created and however we chose to roll out, uh, that we took that into consideration. As businesses grow, enterprise change teams are expected to deliver more. 
but it can be challenging to keep all your company's change planning aligned. Documents get lost or out of date, and executives can't get a clear report on your enterprise change activities. Until now. Change Plan is the incredible connected platform that gives you a powerful, easy to use workspace. You'll get all your reporting at a click, an automated front door process, an org chart synced in with your HR system, and the best part, there's portfolio dashboards for leaders. It is the most comprehensive and user-friendly change tool I have seen on the market. And the results speak for themselves. Teams who use ChangePlan experience a 30% bump in productivity and up to 50% reduction in change saturation. If you want to see ChangePlan in action, head over to changeplan.co slash leading change to set up an obligation-free demo for your team. How did you approach it? So you've got five big pillars, lots to deliver. Was it a big bang, do it all at the same time, or did you have no. to prioritize? How did you actually structure this? Because you did mention you still had culture to look after at mm. the same time. Well, I thought the organization part was was um, was paramount, you know, and it, it actually worked really well that when I spoke to um, everybody across IntelliSystems, one of the things that came up quite often was, I'm not quite sure where I fit in. I don't know who I report to. You know, when I have a problem, I don't know if I should go to this person or this person or somebody else. Um, so that was an automatic uh, lever, if you like, uh, and a, a problem that we needed to solve. And it seemed like there was enough uh, buy-in for that. So that was low-hanging fruit. And, uh, you know, uh, I suppose with any change, you want, to, you want to try and pick up pieces that you know you could be easily successful in. So, you know, you're kind of buying in, uh, you're, you're, you're getting buy-in from people, but you're also getting people to trust you a little bit more. So there, there was a, a vested interest to put some structure into it. Um, what was really important was to show them, you know, what we were changing. You know, why were we moving from an extremely fluid style of leadership and organization to something which is a little bit more structured? Uh, one of the things I was conscious about addressing there was people shouldn't feel like they wouldn't have opportunity anymore. You know, suddenly you're in a sales team. Whereas previously you could be sales, you could be pre-sales, marketing, whatever you wanted. Um, so there it was important to say, look, you need to know what you want to do day to day. But the advantage of being in a small company like ours is if if there's a problem, you're willing to put your hand up and solve it. I will never say no, you know, uh, but we're just going to have to work out where you know, what your what your interests are and what your skill set is, and then we can work it out. So I think having that balance, letting them know that there was still opportunity for them, they didn't have to feel trapped, uh, but at the same time, this would help solve some of the problems they saw uh, in helping them being more agile, um, you know, never feeling like they're asking the wrong person a question. And that's that's a tough thing. You know, if you go to somebody and say, what do you think? That person tells you one view. You go to somebody else, they tell you a completely different thing. Well, you don't know whose opinion to take. But if I'm able to say, well, that is your manager and you only take that person's opinion and I will hold them accountable, you know, from an organization point of view, it makes it easier for them. Uh, and that was, I think that was, a, that was the, the first thing that we implemented and I think it went really well. And then it made other more longer term things like brand uh, easier to, to contemplate. Did you come across much resistance, people who, who just didn't want to come on either one or multiple parts of the journey with you? Um, I wouldn't say they didn't want to come along the journey. I think, you know, change is an interesting thing. I think um, I've heard this 
this comment being made, you know, some people like change, some people don't like change. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I, I think all of us, uh, if you think about it, our DNA is rooted in survival. You can't survive without being willing to change. You know, I think that's a fact. So I don't believe that people aren't willing to change, um, but I think they have different levels of tolerance for change. So it's your question. I think there were some people who were really willing to go for it, just really easy. Yeah, Joseph, that's fine. That makes sense. Let's go. Other people need a little bit more convincing, and they needed to take a little bit more time. Uh, fortunately, we were in a position where I could give them that time, and I didn't have to force a change very, very quickly. Uh, but uh, but I, I don't think I... I wouldn't say I faced a lot of resistance, no. Now, at the beginning, you mentioned that you've actually received a bit of feedback along the way, and it sounds like you took it on really well and actually helped you to grow. What kind of tips do you have around giving and receiving feedback? Oh, look, I've received I've received valuable feedback, period. Um, some feedback has been uh, nurturing, and I think I've, I've been able to accept that a lot quicker and act on it. Some of the types of feedback have been a little bit direct. Um, and I, I think there, if I'm entirely honest, um, you know, when somebody gives you criticism that's very, very direct, your ego gets in the way. You know, you, you put your defenses up. Well, who are you to tell me that? Um, and I think that's important. I've, I've picked from that um, to, to try, try and do things differently. Because if my intention purely is to help the person become better, then I've got to make sure I'm speaking in a language that they can understand. If I come across as, as threatening or if I come across as uh, too direct or too criti- uh, critical, they're likely to take longer to make change. Um, so I suppose in terms of tips, um, I think firstly, don't try and provide advice if you actually don't know your your stuff and there's a lot of there's a lot of people who feel obliged to to give you an opinion uh, and it may not be a good opinion so i think people are really good at 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 working that out and it doesn't take too long if you provide um you know as i said opinion where you don't you don't really have a base of credibility then people are going to stop listening to you so i think that's really important i think be structured around what what you're saying and why you're saying it, and if you really know, then then do it. But uh, but at the same time, you, you know, I think early in our conversation, you talked about empathy. Um, I don't think empathy, at least not for me. Uh, I think it's a learned skill. I, I think you know you can constantly develop it. But I think if you're coming from a place where you truly want to see somebody else succeed, even if it's for your own selfish agenda, then empathy, you know, goes a long way. Uh, put yourself in their shoes. See what what um, level they're at. Uh, and then try and provide the advice around that. And what about around the topic of motivation? I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure as you've taken all of your teams through all these changes, you know, people do lose motivation at Mm. points in time. What are things that you do to kind of get people back and and enthused about what's going on? Look, I think, you know, I think this phrase big picture is, um, is either overplayed or underplayed, but I think it has a lot of value, particularly when you're trying to you know, motivate or change. You know, there's there's got to be something bigger than what we see today. But I think to help people see, look, we we we're doing something here that uh, nobody's ever compli- uh, contemplated before, or we haven't, at least in our circumstance, done before. Um, you know, can help them try and uh, build any of the change or whatever that they want to to achieve. Uh, on that foundation, and and I think it's important to keep reminding them of that. 
Uh, so we we make it a practice to to talk through that quite often. You know, managers talk through it to their teams, and I definitely talk to the managers about it because I think reminding ourselves that's where we're going. You know, we may not be able to achieve it in the near term, but if we don't keep trying, we're never going to get there. But also, just because I have a great idea doesn't, or I think it's a great idea, doesn't mean everybody else thinks. So I think even there, uh, checking with them, do you still see value in this? You know, what's check? Sorry, has something changed? Do you th- do you still see? that this is the best ambition that we can go after, or is there something different? Uh, and I think being able to do that with a team uh, is really valuable. Uh, small companies, I think that's the greatest advantage. You know, I can pick up the phone and speak to every one of my team anytime, um, and I make time for that. Whereas, you know, if you've got a very large team, it's really difficult to do that, and then you're relying on layers to just make that communication. So I, I enjoy it. That's good. So if we, to wrap up, one piece of advice that you could give change leaders as to how they can be successful, what would you say? I think timing. You know, I think pick your timing. Because um, you can have a great idea, you know, you can, you can, you can almost require a must-have change. Uh, it might be dire. Um, but I still think if you're trying to make that change at the wrong time when the people are not ready to make that change with you, then it will fail. Um, so that that's, I think, um, also the biggest challenge with change. Because just because you're ready to make the change, it doesn't mean everybody else is ready to make that change. With you, the market's ready to make that change. So I think you have to figure out, um, you know, how to use the, the time to your advantage. Uh, and that might also lead to, you know, topics like motivation or, or anything else. So I, I think pick your time is, is the Excellent. best thing I can say. Jessup, this has been great. Fascinating. I've loved hearing about your story and uh, views on leadership. It's been very helpful for our audience. Thank you so much for being here. No, pleasure. Thank you for having me.